Andrew VanCast to get you started here for the week. Jeff Patterson along with Thomas Drantz. And yes, we are socially distanced, uh, not in the same room, but uh, hopefully on the same page, Drancer, as we dive back into a number of issues surrounding the Vancouver Canucks. And I did my best to leave the last episode of the VanCast on a cliffhanger, so we will get to that in a sec. But first <laughs> things first, got to take my W's where I can get them. And on the last podcast, I went on about how you know, I kind of lost track of the days of the week through all of this, that uh, there are game days and non-game days. And I felt comforted like an hour after we finished up recording. Then I see you on Twitter dropping this note that the Canucks have added to the news cycle on a Friday afternoon. When right. in fact, the news came out on a Thursday. So I'm not <laughs> alone in this. No, the days have blended completely together. There, you know, it's an endless monotony of, of waking up disinfecting anything that I get delivered to my home, uh, quite obsessively, by the way, and, you know, sort of doing my best to preserve some sense of, of personal dignity and integrity. Um, I actually, like, I full, I've shaved my head this weekend. Like, it was the longest my hair had been, long enough that my wife started joking that I should see if I could grow a ponytail. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and it turns out I can grow a lot more hair than I realized. Like, I am less bald than I thought, um, which is weird. Uh, very strange revelation. My wife was agitating hard for the ponytail. I'm not going to do the quarantine ponytail because that would truly be a sign of the end times, J-Pat. But see, this troubles me because I wanted one of my bald friends, whether it was you or Patrick or somebody else, to, like, shock the hell out of us when we all finally converge wherever it is, whenever it is, and have that moment, like... I don't even know if I know that guy. Like, is that is that Drancer? <laughs> like, I wanted to I wanted to see you with like a big fuzzy afro or something. So, <laughs> well, it really would have been like just a ponytail, right? There's still nothing coming on top. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, it's it's weird, man. Like, it's really weird. Did you watch any of the '94 replay yesterday? I did. I didn't man. think I was going to. I honestly, like, when I saw that it was being replayed, I. I was like, eh, I've seen that so many times. But, like, in this wasteland of anything compelling on television in the way of sports, I found myself watching, and I tweeted this out, and it got a fair bit of response, so it must have resonated with some others, too. But, like, you know, we hold that in such regard, that 94 team, that run, uh, so many of the individual players. And then, like, it just dawned on me as I was watching, like, 1994, 26 years ago, and, and like there are nine regulars in today's Canucks lineup that weren't alive. They weren't born in 1994. I and I guess, A, that tells me I'm getting old. We're all getting old. But like you, you think, okay, like not only do they not remember it, they weren't around for it. Like, it just kind of blew my mind when I thought of, like, you know, Horvat and Besser and Pedersen and Hughes, obviously, and uh, Demko, Vertanen, and McEwen, and Tyler Mott. Uh, is that nine? There are nine of them, if I missed yeah. one. But, um, you know, it, it just it shows you, again, that was 26 years ago, but it speaks to how young the NHL is now and how important young players are more than ever before that you could have, you know, that core four that wasn't even on the planet when right. those games of significance were taking place. I was watching it, and I was just thinking about all the arguments that would be happening on Twitter in the event oh. that the game had been played in a Twitter era and, and I boiled it down. Like I decided that my favorite one by far was that there would be 
Sean Antosky truthers, right? There'd be like people on Twitter who are convinced that Antosky is going to figure it out soon, right? Like <laughs> power forwards just take more time, J-Pat. <laughs> He would have he would have been coming into his own right about now, I think. <laughs> Love it. But yeah, I'm certain that there would have been like the Antosky truthers and I was I, I decided I think it was midway through the third period that those would have been my favorite people to rile up um on Twitter during the sort of ninety four Canucks era. Though I though I also think there would have been like a school of people who were like Larryanov truthers who were like this team's this team's never going to win ever since they gave up on Larryanov. <laughs> I just couldn't get over even though I've seen it many times before like rugby on ice like just the the tackling the obstruction uh, it was incredible like in the neutral zone guys were just yeah. getting hauled down left and right it didn't matter there were no calls play continued and I loved like before Beret scores the winner they put the graphic up that he's played like 33 and a half minutes of the game to that point and still has the burst and the separation capacity, you know, to break away and, and score uh, one of the biggest goals in Canuck history. Like the guy truly was a machine. Yeah, 33 minutes played, a half pack of reds smoked. Um, truly an amazing performance from Pavel Perret. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it was good fun. And, and I don't know what plans uh, the networks have for future playoff games. I mean, I've seen sort of random games here or there. Uh, you know, I, I laughed. I said that the great network test for Sportsnet, obviously, would be to air the Canucks and the Leafs from 94. And then I had somebody say, yeah, watch, they'll play one game from that series. Oh yeah. <laughs> hopefully it's the hopefully it's the Pavelbury hat trick game that featured like 340 penalty minutes. Right there was the bench clearing brawls. I think it was May 20th, 1994, uh, game four to take a 3-1 Canucks win. But the Canucks and the Leafs have like two bench clearing brawls, like true old school shit. Um, so that would be the one that I'd pick. But I'm guessing the uh, <laughs> powers that be might prefer game two at Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, we'll see. But again, I didn't think I'd be drawn to it the way I was, but look, I need my hockey fix. I'm, I'm suffering today because, look, this would have been Vegas tonight. The Canucks were supposed to be at T-Mobile. Uh, who knows how important it would have been in the grand scheme, but like I've said it before, like, I am a sucker for everything that Vegas does with its game presentation. And if people haven't had the opportunity yet, put it on your list. Like, I, I just... Like some of my memories, and I always come back to Botch because he hated how loud it was for warm up, and he would sit there for the full fifteen minutes of warm up just screaming, but nobody could hear him. I'd look over and I could see him, and he was ranting and venting. Uh, but it is so loud in there, and you just can't help but get like jacked up for any game. And I've only seen regular season games in there. I'd love to take part in the playoff atmosphere, and hopefully someday the Canucks will uh, get a chance to face the Golden Knights in the postseason, but, uh, you know, would have been uh, a day, two days in Vegas that uh, is all for naught, but I do know that uh, our colleague here at The Athletic, Don LeCision, is continuing to chart the what-ifs and what-might-have-beens, and uh, Canuck fans probably don't want to hear this, but uh, uh, the latest is that the Canucks might just be the hottest team in hockey, is that uh, is that what I'm hearing? So, yeah, Dom's now simmed Six games since the conclusion of, you know, NHL league play as a result of the COVID-19 suspension. And so <clears throat> to be very clear, right, Dom has this probability model and then the game runs tens of thousands of simulations to 
produce those roster projection things that I wake up to every day. Like I genuinely, I did that before I joined the athletic. I do that today. First thing I check in the morning is playoff probabilities. And so right now though, he's only simulating one game per, right? So he's not doing 10,000. He's doing one so that he's added an element of chance to it. And his, since the, since he started up this project, the Canucks are six zero and O. So they're on a seven game win streak, Jeff, in an alternate Bender. dimension. Heading into Vegas to face a Golden Knights team that's gone two and three over their past five games to pick up only four points. The Canucks and the Golden Knights would be tied at 90 points going into tonight's game for the division crown. Can you can you fucking imagine if that was our reality today, Jeff? If I'd flown into Vegas last night, we'd played we'd lost a couple thousand dollars at the at the ultimate hold'em table. And then we were covering Golden Knights Canucks tonight. Like, come on, man, that's tough to take. You would have lost the money. I, my family was going to be on this trip. I don't think you oh, were going right. to be able to. Yeah, so we would have been in some. <laughs> we would have been taking in some sort of family entertainment on this trip. <laughs> okay, so instead, instead, I would have been losing money while yes. texting you, trying to see if I could join you at at Cirque du Soleil Love, the Beatles show. Right. I think <laughs> do that's mind, probably do mind more. Do I join the fam? <laughs> 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 Uncle Drancer's coming along for a ride. <laughs> I hear you're a yeah. hit with kids. At least in your own mind, you're a hit with kids. Uh, you were telling the story on the weekend on Twitter. Yeah. Regaling the uh, niece and nephew with stories of, uh, what, the, the dawn of time? Yeah, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing 2 p.m. lessons for the kids during weekdays now. Um, so I, I do them and like, I tell a story. They tell me what they want to learn about. Um, and then I do some research and I make up some stories where they like go back and learn about history, but in an immersive way. And they travel back in time with me and a Pikachu doll that I've named Professor Pikachu. And yeah, I'm doing like an hour a day with my niece and nephew teaching them history and stuff. So today we're doing ninjas and princesses. We may Classic. have to. Yeah, you may have to live stream that so we can all log on <laughs> and learn a little bit. <laughs> yeah well look and anything i can do honestly it's like you know with with the hockey season sort of out and like i know that hockey is or sports in general professional sports especially are the toy department of life at the best times and uh, you know to quote pat riley there but you know it, it especially feels inessential at the moment just because of everything else that's you know going on in the world and how many bigger things we how many bigger fish we have to fry right um, but at least contributing and, and helping um, homeschool my niece and nephew uh, gives me that sort of like push, you know, that like this is really urgent. Um, you know, it just at the end of the day, it's it's tough to get as worked up as I might have, especially in an environment where the Canucks had won seven in a row heading into Vegas. Like, could you imagine the way that we would be arguing like Hughes McCarr right Right now, if, if the Canucks were had won seven in a row heading into Vegas, like we would have been going nuts. I would have been. I would have been an absolute firebrand on Twitter about it. Um, and instead, you know, me and Ryan Clark uh, just sort of recapped the athletic awards votes. Uh, the my, Our athletic colleagues have voted Kale McCarr narrowly the Calder winner today. And so me and Ryan debated it. And it's like, you know, I still got worked up for it, but not the way that I would have down the stretch with Quinn Hughes sort of chasing you know, not just Doug Lidster's 63 points, but Ray Bork's 65 for fifth all time for a rookie defenseman. Like we would have been, I would have, I would have had a, I would have been at full froth, J-Pat. 
<laughs> and we, we like you at full froth. And so, again, these are the things that we're all missing. We missed McCarr versus Hughes that Friday night after the cancellation in, in Glendale. And, of course, McCarr didn't play in that game. The Canucks beat the Avs uh, a week earlier at Rogers Arena. So they only went head-to-head the one time uh, all season, and that was back in November. And McCarr was spectacular that afternoon. And, uh, you know, so those are the things that we were sort of – holding on to beyond a, a you know playoff push for the Canucks and uh, you know the, so many disappointments in a season uh, that ultimately I, I just I don't see a way it's going to be completed um, you know I, I know that they haven't come down with any final declaration and they're holding out hope but uh, just where we are in the world it, it just seems so hard for me to see a way back to resuming the regular season like I just don't see any way that you complete the regular season even if there was somehow an opportunity to to get in some playoff hockey uh, at a later date hey just before and it because I do want to pick up where we left off on the cliffhanger last last podcast but uh, in the absence of on ice competition and you were talking about big fish to fry uh, I see you fried the biggest fish of all in Canucks March Madness, the, the Twitter uh, version. <laughs> right. Like an absolute yes. undressing of the owner of the Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> yeah, I, I obviously didn't. I, I've made a sort of commitment to myself that I won't like plug my own performance in this right. competition. Uh, just because, you know, I didn't want to like be a jerk when I was beating people, but also because I'm so sensitive about it that to be seen to care, um, even though I desperately do, uh, would, would, you know, trip up my ego, right? So, like, for example, that very first day, that very first day, and I knew that I was likely to face Sat in the second round, right? So I'm winning by an eight, you know, 70% margin or whatever over Mr. Harrison Mooney, uh, and Sat's beating someone else, Tanbeer, I think, right? And he, he his margin was like a couple percent bigger, and I checked it like eight times that day, like obsessively <laughs> checked to, to compare the margin. Um, so I'm so I'm 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 above it, but really I'm I'm very much beneath it. And the <laughs> beating the owner is funny. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, congratulations to him on a tremendous run taking out both Jackson and JD. <laughs> that was just phenomenal stuff. But it was more the the margin of victory. Like, I'm not surprised that you took down Francesco. It was this like crazy margin, uh, and I, I haven't looked at all the results, but uh, I think it may have even exceeded what harm did to Chris Conte, uh, which was <laughs> incredible. Uh, like it was like a 90 to 10 or 85 15, and I messaged Conte and I said, I think the biggest threat to all of us that are still in this uh, pool here uh, in the month of March. COVID-19 and harm dial comma 19 uh, because right like harms you know it kind of flies under the radar a little bit but he's a man of the people and yep. he's the I, people's I could champ see, for sure I could see him being the kind of quiet assassin through all of this so me too uh, me too I think uh, I think at the end of the day though like I think Wyatt is going to win Wyatt is my favorite at this point he's my next he's my next opponent um you know, Wyatt gets Wyatt plays dirty, gets into the mud. He doctors text messages from people, right? <laughs> I have noticed. And yes. and he uh and and you know, I think he's like the original he's the OG man of the people. You know what I'm wow. saying? And uh, No, look look, the only reason this thing even exists is because Botch isn't here, right? Like this contest couldn't totally. happen. No. And it I think would just we all be embarrassing have- for everyone. <laughs> yeah, it would have been like a 63 against one handicap match, and the one probably still would have 
come out on top. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Let's. Oh, uh, God. I, I, I want to get into the athletic and all of you, the writers, picking sure. the, the year at awards. Real, real quick, yep. though, I would have loved to see him react to Aqua taking down JD and, and Jackson. <laughs> That would have been so good. All right, sorry. Yes, let's go. Let's go well, get to our cliffhanger. Okay, we'll do that for the awards. Sec. Just a moment. Hang in there. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Tournaments have been canceled. Leagues are suspended. There hasn't been a live game on TV in what feels like uh, forever. Even though it's barely been more than a week, there's no better reminder of how important sports are to our lives than to take them away completely. But the Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there, and in these very strange, very uncertain times. They are still hard at work doing excellent reporting and telling unique, engaging, informative stories like the one about Brazilian soccer legend Ronaldinho being in a Paraguayan jail right now or how about the situation between Todd Gurley and the Rams uh, that was beyond repair or how about minor league baseball players getting financial support from their big league counterparts and of course you, Drancer, and your hockey colleagues uh, still uh, pushing out hockey content on the regular as well. It's during times like this that The Athletic can help you uh, keep you connected to the teams, the athletes, and the sports you love. Sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash thevancast, you can receive 40% off an annual subscription. Games aren't being played right now, but the stories that draw us all to sports, those don't go away. So go to theathletic.com slash thevancast for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there previously on the vancast i kind of feel like we need uh, you know like the big uh, <laughs> yeah, reminder yeah. we were talking about reshaping the we were talking about reshaping the canucks defense and what it might look like and how they might achieve it and where it sat on the uh, priority list in our minds for the organization here moving forward and you know you kind of ran through a couple of scenarios and ultimately the cost that may come uh, with this for the vancouver canucks in your mind let's just go back to this whole notion though of upgrading the defense. Quinn Hughes, Alex Adler, Tyler Myers, all under contract. They're all going to be back next year. Yep. Uh, Jordy Ben has another year on his deal, uh, his future less certain. But how much turnover in your mind is required to improve the defense? Because you, know, you can make the argument, okay, they walk away from Chris Tanev, Brogan Rafferty slides in. I don't know if that makes the defense better in the short term. It's an opportunity, obviously, for Rafferty, and it may be a chance for the Canucks to you know, save some dollars that they would have otherwise spent on Chris Tanev. But, you know, you got Troy Stetcher who needs a new deal as well. We know that uh, there's been a lot of talk in the marketplace about Troy Stetcher and his future with the organization, Fantenberg, an unrestricted free agent. Uh, in your mind, how much, like how many pieces are we talking uh, for the Vancouver Canucks to upgrade their defense? Well, yeah. And I think when you look at what specifically needs upgrading on the defense. Now that you have this all-world puck mover like Quinn Hughes, right? And you have, you know, Myers and Edler who, I mean, you know, Edler's first 20 games of the season, right, were electric. But at his age and stage, you can't sustain that, especially not playing 25 minutes a night over 82 games. Like, it's just not realistic to ask of him, right? And so, you know... I, I kind of think you're certainly looking for at least one more top four piece. And when you think about Tanev and what Tanev does well, and, and, you know, I think there are some signs of atrophy in terms of his transition game, but his defensive awareness and his defensive abilities remain, 
you know, locked in, right? Like, he, he remains the defensive savant, as Nolan Baumgartner likes to call him. And, and, I mean, that's just such a fitting, perfect sort of formulation for, for a guy who, you know, does some pretty amazing things on a pretty regular basis, quietly, under the radar, you know, just snuffing out opponents' attacks. If you're moving on from Chris Tanev and bumping Troy Stetcher into your top four on a permanent basis, and obviously he sort of played there pretty regularly after Christmas, um, you know, I, I don't know that that sort of helps you make up ground in the major area in which your team struggled this season, which is literally to prevent scoring chances, right? Like, to in order to improve defensively, don't you need a defenseman? who can give you more defensively and in terms of their two-way game than Chris Tanev? Like, that's a tall order, right? And to do it while also sort of, you know, retaining Markstrom, retaining Toffoli if you can, figuring out what you're going to do on the right side with Levo and Vertanen, you know, hopefully finding some space where you can sign Gaudette to a deal that provides some surplus value over the next year or two, you know, and, and, and certainly making sure that you don't, you know, in any way cloud your ability to sign mega extensions uh, should that be you know in the offing for the likes of Hughes and Pedersen I mean that's a lot to accomplish and to upgrade your blue line and you know as I've looked at it I do think like realistically the improvement on the defensive end on the on the back end might have to wait a year like it might not be something that they can accomplish Considering all of that and considering the likelihood of a flat sort of upper limit scenario as a result of, you know, HRR taking this hit, like, I think it's going to be a really tough sort of balancing act to figure out. And I think they need a lot. Like, I think they need at least another top four guy. And and how do you fit that in based on sort of the puzzle as it's constructed? Like, man, there are, I have some ideas and we'll get into them, but it is not going to be a straightforward sort of task or sort of goal for this front office to achieve. Right, and that's a, a bit of a frightening prospect if, let's just work with that argument then, that they come back with essentially the same defense, and who knows if they can re-sign Tanev, but uh, let's just say for this argument that they come back with the same defense, You know, now you're requiring the same level of goaltending from Jacob Markstrom on right. the regular just to be in the same spot you are, which was bumping up against the playoff bar. Right? Yeah. Like, that's, you're playing with fire there. And that's not to say that Markstrom can't deliver, but there's no assurances. I mean, goaltending uh, it changes from year to year, from, from game to game, a lot of the times. Um, you know, so just trying to sort of frame the conversation in that regard, uh, coming back with the same defense, like, yikes, that seems like a, a risky proposition. But I hear you, because as you mentioned in the last podcast, you know, if you truly were going to make some sort of sizable splash to improve your defense, it comes at a cost and probably as you identify on that right side like there is a if there's an area of surplus you know whether it's Besser whether it's Vertanen like there's just no way that they can uh squeeze everybody in under the cap especially if the cap is flat particularly if the cap remains flat so uh there's going to be some massive decisions to make and that's why you know even though the games aren't being played there is never a shortage of conversation around the Vancouver Canucks in the offseason and this summer uh, won't be any different than the last bunch so uh you know those are the pressing issues that are facing Jim Benning and I know he has tried to remain sort of confident and positive throughout that you know there aren't cap issues but 
you know, whether it's semantics, whatever the case, I mean, those are clearly the challenges that are facing the management group of the Vancouver Canucks here in the offseason. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think they're... You know, when I think Jim's been saying that, he's meant, you know, it's not going to cost us elite guys. It's not going to prevent us from being able to activate all our guys, right? But obviously, in terms of, you know, how they sort of move forward this summer, they are going to be constrained, as all teams are, by the realities of, you know, a capped league. And, you know, what that means for Vancouver, especially in terms of, you know, if Furlan's back, right, or Furlan's going to be on the cap anyway on opening night... Um, you know, that's a big if. We don't know that. Uh, that sort of changes things too, but certainly I think they're going to have to consider a bunch of things that they might not otherwise, you know, in, in terms of, you know, spending assets to move the likes of Sutter, uh, Berchi, you know, considering buyouts of both of those contracts, certainly considering, you know, burying Louis Erickson's contract in the American League and the $1 million in relief that that would give you. Like, these are all things that are going to have to be considered. And then, you know, you come back to that right side and, and sort of the analogy that I'd, that I'd posit would be the sergeshev Druan deal, right? Like, should the Canucks go looking for their version of the Sergeshev swap that the Tampa Bay Lightning pulled off, where you trade, you know, a guy who's coming off his entry-level contract in Druin, who's about to be expensive, who you know is really good, but, you know, maybe you need to find a, a more cost-controlled piece who can upgrade your back end, someone who's maybe not proven they're a top-four guy yet, but can get there. And so, you know, I, I do think that you're right to identify Vertanen and Besser for sure. Like, that's sort of, you know, one of the options that I think they're going to have to consider. And, and look, I wouldn't personally um, consider that for too long. Like, I think Brock Besser's value is likely at a low ebb. I think he can do a lot more. Uh, than he did, especially in his last 10 games of the season, um, you know, before his injury. Um, and then that game against the Islanders where he wasn't quite up to his full gear as as you'd expect, having missed, you know, what was it, five weeks, six weeks? So, yeah. you know, I think Brock Besser, uh, I think Brock Besser remains a, you know, a bona fide top line winger, a guy with star level ceiling, just 23 just turned 23 right he's just entering his prime years like you know you got to give it another go but man I mean when you consider sort of what this team needs and how this team takes that next step it's tough to see them taking that you know additional step forward without additional push from the back end and you know you'd have to think that all options are going to be on the table as they look to improve that part of their team Hey, you referenced uh, the McCarr versus Hughes and uh, the fact that the athletic writers have all cast their ballots here. Um, and the article was posted at The Athletic. People can read it and go through it uh, award by award. Does this impact your... Uh, because, you, look, you've kind of been ahead of the curve. You wrote the piece back in November or December that people may have liked McCarr as the front runner, but you watch Hughes is going to close the gap. And sure enough, he did and ends up finishing with more points. And you laid out your case and Ryan Clark, who covers the Avs, uh, he countered. But ultimately, the votes that were counted, uh, Kale McCarr gets the rookie of the year, according to the athletic writers. Does it dampen your hopes in any way that this is, you know, that Hughes has a, a like these. These aren't all the professional hockey writers. These are just the athletic writers. So there are there's a broader voting base out there. Um, but do you think ultimately that 
this is a foreshadowing. Are are these the Golden Globes to the uh, to the Oscars essentially? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. These are the Critics' Choice Awards at the very right. least. Um, the the fact of the matter is is you know I think McCarr's three point performance against the New York Rangers, like a big market team, as a final impression, was a pretty emphatic exclamation yeah. mark. And I think that you know that. That leads with there being that that sort of leaves us with there being only a three point gap between the two in terms of scoring. I think in order to win it, Hughes needed to get up into that sixty five ish point range, right? Like the more that people were like, "Wow, Quinn Hughes passing Ray Bork or tying Ray Bork," like the more that that had been said over the pat over the last you know six weeks, five weeks of the season the the sort of further the scales would have tipped in Hughes's favor and it was going to happen but you know it didn't get a chance to and and I think ultimately you know these are about narrative right this is about narrative heft and Makar came in and he had this just outrageous first two months of the season and that's cons- you know that shifted sort of the dynamic away from Hughes in a, in a pretty significant way and while you know Hughes did close the gap largely because you know his profile was more sustainable than McCarr's was. McCarr wasn't going to keep shooting 17%, right? And, you know, from the point that I wrote that article on, uh, Quinn Hughes not only outscored him in fact, but outscored him on a point-per-game basis too, right? Um, You know, he was sort of playing slightly a few more minutes and was playing in a matchup role, and I think all of the underlying data suggests that he meant more to his team. Like, the Avs were... The Avs outscored their opponents without Makar on the ice by a wider margin than they did when he was on the ice, right? Like, Makar's a tremendous piece, an unbelievable defenseman, but it's impossible to make the argument that he meant more to the Avalanche than Quinn Hughes meant to the Canucks, right? The Canucks were outscored by seven without Quinn Hughes on the ice five on five. They outscored their opponents by four with him. Like, that's a huge shift in terms of his impact, and that, that doesn't even get into all the other data that favors him, which is attempts, you know, sh- uh, scoring chances, shots on goal. So, you know, I mean, again, I think the narrative heft that Hughes needed was he needed to get into that, wow, this is a really historic season from a rookie defenseman conversation, uh, which he needed about 10 more points, 12 more points to do. And, and, you know, there was a very good chance that he'd have done it. And two, I think he needed to be the guy who led the Canucks on a playoff push, right? Like he needed to have that additional sort of narrative arrow in his quiver that was this is a guy who's played and leading this team a nice time down the stretch as they claw into a playoff berth for the first time in five years like he needed those two things to go his way to undo the electric start that McCarr got off to uh, unfortunately he's just not going to get a chance to to get there how closely did the other major award winners uh, mirror your your ballot D- dry hellebuck Yossi, AV was coach of the year, uh, Couturier. Uh, did you have all those guys or did you stray from the, the path? I ha- I had Vigneault. I had Couturier. I did not have Dreisaitl. I had McKinnon. Um, and then I had um, Julian Brisebois for a general manager, uh, not Joe Sackick. But, you know, hard not to be very impressed with what the Avs have patiently, methodically assembled you know, the, the amount of weaponry that they boast is through the roof, and they're going to be an absolute, absolute buzzsaw for years to come. 
Hey, when we recorded uh, last on Thursday, there wasn't uh, any really pertinent Canuck news. Of course, since we did this, uh, they dip into the college ranks. Uh, I mean, Will Lockwood was one of their own draft picks, but they took care of that business. And Mark McKaylis, uh from Minnesota State, uh, one-year deal, 24-year-old, uh, high-scoring college guy. Um, you know, chances of a guy like Michaelis hitting are, are slim, just at the age that he is. But, you know, on a one-year deal, I suppose that those are gambles worth taking uh, if you're the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, and you know they've uh, they've got a good track record here, right? Like they deserve some benefit of the doubt, and and I think that you know one thing I was interested in sort of reading between the lines was that you know Jim sort of kept coming back to AHL, like we think he's close to being an AHL player with Michaelis, right? And yep. you know talked about the lack of depth at center that they have and and i saw some people in my mentions getting mad about that being like well they just traded madden and it's like yeah but they viewed madden as a winger i mean there's people in the industry who don't but they did anyway the uh michaelis thing look uh, worthwhile gamble helps them sort of flesh out without acquisition cost uh, an area of need in their pipeline and you know certainly he's got the scoring track record to indicate that he could be something uh, albeit, you know, I- I'd say it's pretty unlikely that he's an NHL player just because NHL future NHL players typically aren't in college, uh, still sort of in college at, at the age of 24, as we've seen. So, you know, some interesting moves. I think the looks like the Canucks are likely done in terms of, you know, NCAA free agents. I know Jim teased that there was another guy they were waiting on hearing from. Um, I'm not sure if that's one of the guys who signed. Like, I don't think he was referring to Connor Mackey. Um, you know, I, I suspect it might be a player who just goes back to school. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that. Like, I do think we're still going to see a lot fewer college players who might have otherwise signed sign just as a result of them being disappointed that they didn't get a chance to, to play in the playoffs. So, um, obviously, we'll also sort of be tracking where things go with Jack Rathbone. Jim spoke to that briefly on Friday as well, and that's one that'll be watched closely, especially because, you know, I think he's probably ready, man. Like, I think he could probably, I'm not saying he will, I'm saying if the Canucks have a 2020-2021 training camp, um, I could see him being like the Troy Stetcher of camp or the, you know, guy who sort of makes an impression and, and maybe even makes the team especially considering sort of the options on that left side, you know, in a world where maybe Jordy Ben is moved on, um, you know, I could see that. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. My guess is, uh, my guess is that, you know, he'll, again, I'm just sort of betting against college players signing typically right now. Like uh, you're, you're not seeing a ton of them. Uh, I think Rathbone likely ends up being one of those two, but uh, that'll be an interesting sort of story to track here as we sort of wait out our, you know, uh, social distancing at the moment. Now, is this the point of the podcast where we say hello to Farhan, who we have learned <laughs> is apparently one of our big fans, which is terrific. Yeah, uh, we, need all, we need all the listeners we can get, but uh, yeah, apparently we 100%. keep Farhan company uh, on his jogs here uh, during That's- this downtime. That's awesome. Should we should we throw in some critical Alex Edler content just for his enjoyment? Like some <laughs> some very some very critical Alex Edler takes just to power Farhan toward the end of his run. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
oh, put what the a beauty. hammer down for the the final four hundred meter sprint there right? <laughs> to the to the front door. Uh, maybe maybe for the next one. Maybe we'll yeah. we'll, uh, we'll keep that. Uh, I want to uh, tell our listeners as well that Donald Fear, the executive director of the NHLPA, joins Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun this week on the Two Man Advantage pod, so check that out. And make sure you rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash thevancast, you get 40% off your subscription. We continue to make the pledge here. Even though games aren't being played, there is still enough to get to and lots of issues to uh, really dig down deep into. So we'll try uh, to continue to produce two podcasts a week. So uh, we'll be back in touch uh, a little later on this week, and we'll see if the Canucks have uh, some more news for us. Uh, there will be off-season news here as we go, but I guess officially we're not into the off-season just yet, still uh, on pause as far as the National Hockey League is concerned. But for Grant Search, JPAD, as always, stay safe, uh, take care of each other, look out for each other, and thanks so much for uh, making the VanCast part of your uh, social isolation. Yeah.